Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Asband, our daf of the day, Masachet Chagiga, daf kaf vav. We're on page 26. We have already had our seum in the convenience that is a Sunday, and we want to thank those of you who were able to participate in person. We would like to thank those of you who spoke. We would also like to let any of you who wanted to be there and were not able to be, that our recording of the seum, please God, will be up soon. Um, on our YouTube channel, and also you'll we will um we will post about it on Facebook once it goes up, and probably in the WhatsApp as well. Um, okay, we have these bla- last couple of dafim to finish off of Masachet Chagiga. This daf is replete with Mishnayot. We are going to have a tag team again, and we've done this before. Uh, you know, we're gonna just gonna take turns and go through them. So the first Mishnah of the daf really begins. Is the end of Kafe. Um, just in the interest of doing Kafe, um, um, it was kind of, I don't know, like it was its own topics. So this comes with the Mishnayot of Kavav. Min hamodi'im vilifnim namanim al-klicheres. So what does this mean? From modi'im and inward toward toward Yerushalayim. And what this modi'im is a, nowadays there's a city. Yardena, you live in modi'in, it's a city, Right. Um, well, it's Modi'in. This is Modim, but yeah, right. It's not the same place. My point is that it's not the same place, um, but it's not. It's not necessary. It's still to the west of Jerusalem. Put it that way, so that when you look at a map, if you look at you know your when it says it's um an an inward to Jerusalem, it's it's you're looking from. I don't know, some way between, from on a modern map between Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim. From this point, from Modim inward toward Yerushalayim, um, we end up saying it's about 15 mil, right? Which is not miles of modern miles. Um, all of the potters, including the Ameha Aretz, are considered nemanim, um, faithful, meaning <coughs> responsible, credible, about their the purity of the klicheres, the earthenware vessels that they make. Meaning, if they tell you it's pure, you can know that it's pure, you can trust it. And if they tell you that it's impure, you can trust that it's impure. Mina modi'im v'lachutz. But from modi'im to out, you know, outside, to the, <coughs> excuse me, to the far side of Yerushalayim, they are not, ein nemanim, the, those potters are not considered um, reliable in this way. Kate said, why not? How How so? So what happens from so when we're talking about um this this place modim and towards Jerusalem, then the potter who sells the pots that he makes, right? All of those customers that are um everybody is concerned about this, right? That's that's the presumption. Right, so the, and he is concerned about being their provider, right? So that's why you want to say that he's good. He, it's not about wanting to say me. That's what the the gemar. No, I'm sorry, I'm misspeaking here. The Mishnah here is talking about the potter who is selling, you know, towards Yerushalayim, and is considered credible because it's exactly that. That if he his customers are, um need him to be credible. So therefore, to get those customers, he needs to be credible, right? He needs to be reliable in this, because otherwise they won't come to him. Whereas if you, you know, outside to the other side of Modim, he's not considered reliable because 
that was not where there was great concern about this two-month-hour issue to begin with, right? At least that is my my innate understanding. And some of the words here, you know, it just says, you know, it just specifies that he's credible in this direction, he's not credible in that direction, and he's the potter, right? So he's they're the potters and they're the the customers. Naaman, everybody here is concerned about Tumantara. Your data over to you. Over to me. And just one thing I want to point out, which will become relevant later on, is there were no kilns in Yerushalayim. So you had to go out of Yerushalayim to actually get your pottery. So that was also part of the problem here. So That is a tidbit I did not know. I like yes. that tidbit. And the reason for that is because supposedly some of the Mepharshim explained that, you know, the uh, kiln would let out smoke that either would sort of blacken uh, the walls of Yerushalayim or um, it would, you know, give an odor that would uh, mix with the reach michoach, with the, with the odor of the incense that would come from the Beit HaMikdash. Now, you know, a different question is whether or not this is actually true. I did try to actually, because this was something I found in one of the Gemars I was using, I did actually try to look and see, you know, is there archaeological evidence to actually support this? That was not as clear to me. I mean, they, you know, they definitely, I think they have found some kilns in Yerushalayim, um, but but to understand, I think, this stuff, it's, you know, we're supposed to understand that th they didn't really have them in Yerushalayim. So you really had to leave Yerushalayim in order to get your pottery. Um, and so that's also why there was a particular issue, um, you know, uh, uh, around this, that you had to make sure you had uh, tahor people or trustworthy people to bring pottery into Yerushalayim. Okay, next It also makes sense of the rest of the Daf and the Gemara, not just the Mishnah, the Gemara that's talking about the the Jerusalemites going out of Jerusalem to get their pots. Exactly. So here we're talking about you have a uh, you have a case of Ameha Arts tax collectors who go into a house to collect an item basically for tax or thieves who return vessel vessels, you know, Caleb that they had stolen. We basically believe them, right? When they say we didn't touch the rest of the houses in any of the other objects in the house and they all remain pure. In other words, what they return to you is going to be considered tame or whatever the tax collector touched is tame, but we assume they didn't touch anything else. In Yerushalayim, even Ameha Aretz are basically, uh, we believe them when they talk about the Kodesh, right, through here. Um, and even during the uh, Regal, we even believe them uh, for the Truma itself. So the Gemara here is basically, you know, starts off basically with a Mishnah from Taros uh, that says that if a tax collector goes into your house, everything is basically Tameh. And then the Gemara basically some, spends some time talking about that that has to be talking about a non-Jewish tax collector. So I, I, I just, when you read this passage, I'm not going to read the whole Gemara again because we're sort of just really going through the Mishnayos pretty quickly. Um, what's interesting here is I think you see like sort of an anxiety about their life, right? That you had these non-Jewish tax collectors that could come in. It had the potential to make everything tummy. Like there were, you didn't always get to even control your own home from Tumantara. So this also brings to me like the anxiety level about Tumantara, even to a whole new level. Yeah, for sure. It's much worse than having just somebody who doesn't know the laws of Kashrut in your kitchen because it affects things that go beyond your food. Right, exactly. And so, you know, I think this is giving a very 
must have been a very practical issue, right? Something that occurred. But nonetheless, you know, to think about that, you, you know, would have to take some of your kalim and make them talk or because a stranger entered and the question of can you trust them or not trust them is very interesting. Okay, next. So we have here a case of somebody who's opening a barrel of wine and it's going to be in a public festival sale, right? And likewise, somebody who starts selling dough, um, meaning it's during the time of the pilgrimage festivals. So, so meaning this is like public wine, public dough in a public place. My intuition is to say, oh my goodness, that's going to be very risky in terms of Tumantara. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Yigmor, the Rabbi Yehuda says that you could, since he's, the food and the wine was pure at the beginning, he could continue selling, meaning once he has started selling pure things, he can continue selling it in that state of purity, even though after the, you know, even after the festival, meaning it's considered pure as far as he's concerned. The Chachamim Omrim, as we might expect them to, the, the rabbis and sages say, Lo Yigmor, he may not fi- finish selling it, meaning, what are you kidding? I mean, again, doesn't look where the Mishnah doesn't say what are you kidding, but that's that's the implication to me, right? The idea that you've got Ameharats, there's a given that you have Ameharats who are present because of the pilgrimage. So the idea that you could continue selling is kind of remarkable. And the Gemara basically says, We're not really doing the Gemara, but I just you know, just to give some context here, the Gemara says, you know, in answer to the question, like, how could you ever think that you could have that you could establish this as tahor, as pure. So the Gemara says that basically um, Hashem declares it, the Ameha Aretz um, pure because it's the festival, meaning that is how we're doing it, right? Like that's, it's a definition um, because there's this, you know, desire to have established it this way. But the sages, the, the majority opinion is to be more cautious. All right. And now on to the fourth Mishnah. So this is a very interesting Mishnah. It's talking about what happens after the Regal period, after one of these pilgrimage holidays. Um, and once it passed, right, and all basically the priests, right, all these Kohanim came, because remember, all the Kohanim worked in the Beit HaMikdash at the time of the Regal, right? You didn't have the Mishmarot. It was basically all hands on deck. All the Kalim were basically brought into the Azara and everything needs to be made Tahor. Because the thinking is, is that there had to be some Ameha Aretz Kohanim who were, uh, who were not careful. And some of those Kalim were touched by those Ameha Aretz uh, priests, right? So very interesting that the idea here is that there could have been Kohanim who were not so careful with this. Avar HaRegal Yom Shishi. Let's say the festival, the, the Regal passed by into a Friday. In other words, the festival ends on a Thursday night, right? So the, the next day is Friday. They did not pass, right? They would not make the, they would not on Friday basically do the taha, the, the, the purification process of making all these vessels tahor. Right? Because they wanted to give everybody enough time to get ready for Shabbat. Rabbi Huda says, even if the day after the Holiday is Thursday, meaning the festival ended on a Wednesday night. Because the the Kohanim just aren't free. They really need to, at that point, uh, uh, getting ready. Uh, they have to think about getting ready um, uh, for Shabbat. So, uh, you know, a very, very interesting um, uh, 
Mishnah because it again it talks about the possibility that everything could be made tummy or there's an assumption that everything is tummy because sort of everybody was there and we don't trust all the Kohanim themselves that they could have been uh, careful. The then they quote a Brisa later on in, the, in this section when they discuss this Mishnah that the reason why even Wednesday. Uh, you know, sorry, Thursday, if the, if the festival ends Wednesday night, Thursday, why, you know, what is it that the Kohanim are busy with? Uh, they can't take care of, you know, putting all these Kalin into the uh, mikvah because they're basically uh, cleaning out all the ashes, you know, so from the Mizbeach because of all of the different korbanah that were brought. I mean, I can only imagine what the Beit HaMikdash looked like after a regal, right? Like, I know what my house looks like after a holiday. So, like, it, it must have been messy. And it probably required some cleaning. So this opinion of Rabbi Yehuda is interesting because I think he's trying to say even, you know, the Thursday, you know, before Shabbat, it, it's like it's just busy. There was just stuff that they needed to get done. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it was very busy. Messy. Busy and messy. But the point is, I think also that, I don't know, the, the... Uh, I don't... What do you call it? The de facto of this, right? Like, the fact that it's just describing, again, we've talked about this before in this Masachet, right? Like they would come through with a process of purification, right? This is the day. What are they going to do with the vessels? It's very matter of fact. Yeah, exactly. This was just, and, and that's really the new appreciation that I've come to about Tumantara from this Masachet. All right, we're on to our last Mishnah now. Last Mishnah. And similar, it's on the heels of the previous Mishnah. Kitsad Mavirin Altarat Azara. Um, okay, so how do how would they pass the vessels um, of the of the azara of the courtyard through the process of purification? I mean, how would they get this accomplished? They would dunk the vessels that had been in the Beit Hamikdash in the temple and they would say to the Ameha Aretz Kohanim. It just says to them, but it means that they were going to say because you could tell from from the statement that comes following that they say to the Kohanim who are Ameha Aretz who had been involved right during the Chag meaning you Ameha Aretz priest they're still allowed to be priests right you Ameha Aretz priest who's not innately so careful with Tumantara make sure that you don't touch the table meaning the Shulchan the formal table of the which is had the the Lechem Apanim etc right because if if the one of the Kohanim would in fact render it tame, then the whole table would have might need uh is that true? The yeah, it would, would need, need to, to be, be removed. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly what it is. It would need to be removed, and then you would basically have a break in the Lechama Panim being there, right? The idea is right, that exactly. spread there continuously, but you would have to take the table out. So we're not talking about like little when we're using the word Kalim here, let's just be clear. It's not only like it, we're talking about like the big vessels of the Beit HaMikdash, you know? Also. Or from so, the big to the small, right, right. exactly. So th this wasn't a little deal to like do tefillah and all of these things. And you might be asking, why don't they have a backup? And in fact, they did. Meaning they would have a second and a third uh, backup vessel, right? Lest the first one become tummy, meaning they knew that it was a possibility. They still needed to provide against that you know, you want to be very careful to make sure that it doesn't happen. But in the event that it happens, they're also ready to go with backups. They would bring in the substitute. All of the vessels that were in the Beit HaMikdash would require 
Tvila immersion after the festival. There you go, Yordana. Talk about a mess, right? All of them would require um, dunking. Chutz mizbach uh, yeah, the golden altar, and the bronze altar. These were so, um, they weren't literally attached to the ground, but they're, you know, quite heavy and they're considered to be like the ground. And because they're like the ground, they're not, consi- they're not um, considered, they're not going to be possible to render them impure, at least, at least according to Rabbi Lezer. They have a different reason. The sages say the majority view is not because they were like attached to the ground, but because they were covered, meaning one is covered in gold and one is covered in bronze. So this, I think, also gives uh, just a, a different perspective on the cleanup, as you say, Yordana, post-Chag, the idea that every single thing had to be dunked in a mikvah, which means that all of the all of the backup versions of the same kalim had to be brought out, right? And this must have been a very big production. And the thing that I find most interesting about this is we know about the Mama Dota, we know about the Mishmarot, of how many Kohanim came to work in the Beit HaMikdash, and it's a regular rotation, right? Meaning there's no, as far as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong here, but as far as I recall, it's not as if there's a double shift coming on right after the Chag to help clean up. So I feel like some people just no, ended up doing more. it goes back to the regular Mishmar. You're totally right. So I think, you know, the, the the cleaning up still needed to be done by all the Kohanim. They, and, and and they just had a, a busier shift, right? And then I imagine that the rotation kind of, you know, shifted over the years, whatever. I'm sure everybody got their turn. But I imagine that it was a big job. You know, it, it's overwhelming to me to think about what that must have meant. Think how big the Beta McDash was, how many people came in with how many Karbanot, and on top of all the, like, like mopping, right, you also had to go and kind of re-purify all of the vessels. It's a big deal. Yeah, this was a big job. Now, I, my only question is about the Mizbeach. Uh, yes, they consider it Karka. Was this like a practical thing? Like, in other words, there's no way you could have taken that Mizbeach and and put it in a mikvah. So there was. Almost but I don't. Like I think it was. I think it was too heavy. So yeah. either it was Karka or because it's covered. But whatever re- your rationale is. Tachlis, they weren't going to do it, right? I agree. Is it after the fact? It might be an after the fact reason, right? But but this idea, I mean, I think it's something we don't even think about that we are saying that even the kalim in the Beit Hamikdash become tame. I, I, to me, was a little bit mind blowing. You know, like I always think of it like everything was, you know, it, it, everything was so careful. Everybody was careful, and what we're really learning from these Mishnayos is, yeah, you have to be careful. But we know there are people who aren't careful. We don't prevent those people from going to the Beit HaMikdash. Like, that's actually not the solution to this. It's okay. We're just going to have to take everything to the mikvah afterwards. And again, this shows that Tumen Tower is just practical and it's without judgment. It also shows that, you know, if you relate to the Kohanim as this, I mean, indeed, holy class of people, the holiness is there. But that doesn't mean that each and one, each and every one of them was careful about Tumen Tara, Right? Meaning the Kohen Am Haaretz does not mean an ignorant Kohen. It means a Kohen who is not careful about Tumadara on his own watch. Meaning, and and therefore there's implications to what that means in the Beit HaMikdash. Don't touch the Shulchan. That's a big deal, you know. And and again, no judgment, right? There's no critique right. of the Kohen here. Co- they still let those Kohanim in. 
Well, that's our topic exactly. discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this app on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.